Tennessee football just won the Super Bowl. That's what Spencer Rattler said after Saturday's game. Easy for him to say. He was sacked six times by the Tennessee Vols in an important victory uh, at Neyland Stadium, a, a raucous Neyland Stadium. Adam Sparks was there. He joins us alongside John Adams. And I'm Blake Topmeyer. Here we are on the Volunteer State. Guys, uh, important result, as I said, for Tennessee. I don't know how good South Carolina is. In fact, I think they aren't very good. However, given what happened last year, I think this was an undeniable revenge game for Tennessee fans. Adam, I'm sure you sensed that in the stadium. But in terms of the on-field developments, some important happenings for Tennessee as well. Getting Cooper Mays back, getting the run game going. What was maybe your guys' most important takeaways from Saturday night, aside from just gaining some semblance of revenge for losing to South Carolina last year? Yeah, well, first let me just say the the Super Bowl comment by Spencer Rattler, that was a funny way that that came out in the press box after the game. Um, the South Carolina media went down to you know do that presser. The UT media went to the UT presser. And then none of the South Carolina media that I heard mentioned at all that comment. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. maybe, sometimes maybe it doesn't hit in the same way if you're covering that team. Um, and then one of the UT uh, media relations staff said, "Hey, I think Spencer Rattler said this was the Super Bowl." <laughs> Everybody was like, "What?" And then they suddenly started reviewing the what the context was and all that sort of stuff. And uh, it it was funny because. Um, about a half an hour before that, yeah, so when the when the game ended, Tennessee staff, coaching staff, left the coaches' box, and at least one, maybe two, but at least one, and I don't know which coach this was. I have a, I have an idea, but I don't know which coach it was for sure. But one of the coaches was really celebrating, and you guys have been in press box where we hear this, right? The coaches run to the elevator to mm-hmm. go down after a big win, and they're just yelling uh, in celebration, and um, – and I sort of looked back, and I, I, we all, all the media responded to it. Her eyes got big, and and I, and I said to a couple of guys beside me, I said, "Guys, it's just South Carolina, you know." <laughs> it was a really big like uh, weight off the shoulders, like. But it's it's you didn't beat Alabama, you didn't beat Georgia. It was just South Carolina. So then, a little while after that, for then Spencer Rattler to then react in the same way that this was a huge game, it's a Super Bowl. Um, it was funny, but it also. I think pointed to the fact that this did mean a lot to Tennessee and a lot to Tennessee fans, maybe even more to fans, I think, than the team. Uh, it, it meant a lot. But then once you win the game, it, I think it's reasonable to look back and say, OK, it was it was still just South Carolina. And, and that's kind of where I'm at. Um, it was a step in the right direction. Um, the run game is good. The uh, the pass rush is good. The secondary can actually make plays. But all the positive things that you can pull out of this game, you still say, well, it's just South Carolina. And it's this year's South Carolina, a team that I think probably is going to be pretty close to the bottom of the East. They'll be better than Vanderbilt. Who else will they be better than in the East? I'm not real sure. And so positive for Tennessee, but there are tougher opponents coming forward. So I, I want to see going forward if Tennessee can do against better teams what it did in, in this one. Uh, Spencer Rattler might be playing in a Super Bowl one day. He's a really talented quarterback. He won't be playing in a bowl game this year, though. South Carolina is horrible. One of the worst offensive lines we've seen 
uh, not just this year. Uh, so, however, what? So, yeah, Tennessee had a great pass rush. I thought that was significant. Um, but a lot of teams will have a great pass rush against South Carolina. What stuck out to me was Cooper Mays coming back, and I thought the offensive line really gelled. When, when I see the difference he made, you move Ollie Lane over to guard, you strengthen yourself at two positions, and Tennessee ran the ball so effectively with three different running backs. That, that made a huge impression on me. South Carolina's defensive front is not as inept as its offensive line. Uh, it actually held Georgia down at times. Uh, Georgia only scored 24 on South Carolina. So I thought that was, I thought that was really significant. And I think it's going into a tougher part of the schedule. The health of Cooper Mays is uh, crucial to this team. I mean, you could say it's crucial to everybody, but we saw the difference he could make and the schedule would get tougher. Tennessee really needs uh, Cooper Mays in there. I remember talking to Bill Martin in preseason and he was talking to Tennessee's media relations director and he was talking about the value of Cooper Mays. We just don't think about centers that much, uh, even though they start everything on offense with the snap. But I, I just thought that was really interesting how much better it looked in the offensive line and running the ball. And I think it's multifaceted with Cooper. I think people sometimes think of uh, what's that's the leader of the offensive line for whatever that means. Um and that he can make the line calls more efficiently because he's used to playing the position. But I think there's so much more to – like when Cooper Mays comes to the sideline, him and Glenn Ellerby, the offensive line coach, I think have have pretty in-depth conversations about what Cooper is seeing, what can work. You know, we, we tend to think about this sort of as the quarterback. Uh, Joey Halsley, the OC and quarterbacks coach, has talked – the last few years about whoever his quarterback is, he wants to know what makes them comfortable. He wants to know what they're seeing as opposed to what's being seen from up above or from the sideline. And the, Tennessee, the, there's no way that they had that, at least not to the extent they need it, with Ollie Lane at center. He's used to playing guard. He's been a backup guard, a serviceable backup guard through his career. Then he was suddenly starting at center, a position he's not super um, uh, used to playing. And so he doesn't really have the vision to see what's going on in defense in little minute details that Cooper Mays does. And so I, th- I think it probably – it probably in some extent I think it actually helps the play calling that Cooper Mays is out there. And you saw in that game where there were things that they had not done or not called on offense, and I think that's, that's two parts. It's Cooper Mays being able to communicate things um, between drives, and that's also having confidence that they can pull things off that are a little more complex than they could with Ollie Lane at, or Dane Davis at center or anybody else besides Cooper Mays. And, and Cooper Mays, as you guys have talked about, his his return was was so notable. Notable too, and and Adam has written about this. Uh, I guess on on the flip side, you know, so that sort of the disappointing news from Saturday is the season-ending injury to Brew McCoy. Kind of a, a really a tough to watch ankle injury that's uh, going to take one of Tennessee's best receivers out of the mix the rest of the way. So some good news on offense, Cooper Mays back, some bad news um, as well with, with the Brew McCoy injury. And not just because of the injury situation, guys, but with that in mind, and then also you guys kind of know the way Saturdays unfold, like the way you're feeling 
about a team at noon is not always the way you feel about a team come 10 o'clock in the evening. Like a lot can change throughout the course of the day. So, you know, it's about noon or 1230 on Saturday, and I am watching Kentucky just dismantle Florida. An embarrassing game for the Gators. Um, you know, Florida looked every bit as bad as it did in that season opening loss to Utah. And I'm thinking, how in the world did Tennessee lose, not only lose, but lose decisively to this Florida team that looked like a joke in Lexington? Um, and so at that point, middle of the day, it's kind of down on the Vols. And then by the end of the night, Brew McCoy injury was the downside, but overall an encouraging night for Tennessee. So given everything that happened Saturday, what we saw happen in Lexington combined with what we saw in Knoxville, are you feeling better, worse, or about the same about Tennessee as you did going into the day? I feel about the same. Um, Now, you know, I mean, a week ago on this pod, I said I thought they could go three and one. Um, in the next four SEC games, so they're now one and zero in that in that stretch. Uh, I feel better that they could beat A and M now. Uh, I feel much better in that way because um, because you saw the impact of the Neyland crowd. Now this is going to be an afternoon game at Neyland, not a night game, but you saw the impact of that. Um, if they're playing at home, they're going to be pretty tough to beat. If they're playing on the road and it's a it's a loud road crowd. They're, it's going to be pretty tough for them to win, and that's sort of where the line is right now. I think they're they're not good enough to overcome really difficult road environments. That offense is not is not good enough to do it. Now with Cooper Mays in there, maybe that changes a little bit. Um, but I, I I think if you look at home games the rest of the way, you should pick the Vols. If you're looking at road games in tough environments against good teams. You should probably pick against the balls. And I was looking at the numbers of, uh, you know, because we're thinking through Florida. And like you mentioned, at Kentucky steamrolled Florida. That was at the swamp. And Tennessee obviously had one, at the swamp, one has not won at the swamp in 20 years. Josh Hopple has, you, you can see enough sampling now of his tenure uh, to see kind of where the strengths and weaknesses are. In SEC games at home, Josh Hopple seven and two. SEC games on the road, he's four and five. Now, that makes some sense. He should be winning more at home than on the road. But who are the ones that he's beaten on the road? Who are the ones he's lost to? The losses, the SEC road losses under Hypel, the Swamp twice. Um, and that's, I mean, it's one of the loudest places in America. Just very difficult to win there. Alabama, really, really good team and, and a pretty, pretty loud uh, environment. South Carolina, who has one of the more underrated uh, atmospheres that you're going to face, their their crowd is usually better than their team. That was a difficult game to play out. And Georgia is the other one. At Georgia, that was the number one team in the country. Georgia is not necessarily known for having one of the loudest environments in the SEC, uh, but I was at that game, and that was maybe the loudest college football game I've ever been at. So, again, r- good teams or tough environments – or the combination of the both, they lose. They lost all five of those. Where have they won in the SEC on the road under Hopple? Missouri, Kentucky, Vandy, and then LSU. And the LSU game was a noon game. That was kind of a weird one. But Missouri, Kentucky, Vandy. Um, they, 
if it's a tough road environment, it's a really good team. They're probably going to lose. And that's even when they've been at their best. If it's a, if it's a home game, you're going into Neyland, you're going to get beat. And I think that's the way we should look at this. Uh, I think that's probably going to be uh, the way it is the rest of the way. Now you get to the Georgia at Tennessee, that could, you know, that could be more of a coin flip depending on how, what George is doing by then. But uh, I feel better about what's coming up for Tennessee because I think the impact of that of that crowd is going to probably be worth 10 points the rest of this year. I probably feel a little better about Tennessee, but I still have plenty of question marks. Uh, one of the things I've really noticed in, in covering Tennessee for so many years, going back to the 1998 national championship season, I remember those home games against Florida and Arkansas. When the game was on the line, it was a close game, could have gone either way and the impact of the crowd in those games. Well, since Josh Heupel became the coach in this era, I think Neyland Stadium has the same kind of home field advantage that it had way back then. And I thought for many years it didn't. I didn't consider Tennessee to have as big a home field advantage as, say, LSU did or, or uh, Florida did, certainly, or even Auburn or, or Alabama. But I feel like it has one of the best home field advantages now in college football, and I think that has a lot to do with how the fan base is excited about the program under Josh Heupel. However, I also think that in general, the SEC crowds seem to be louder. I noticed Missouri's crowd against Kansas State, and I never noticed Missouri's crowd before. Uh, I thought Kentucky's crowd was loud against Florida. Uh, I really noticed that, and that was an afternoon game. I think part of that has to do with fans not just being enthused about their program. I think they're really seeing that they can make a difference in a game. When you see those false starts happening, I mean, that really energizes a crowd. They feel like they're involved and they can impact the outcome. So I think that will continue to build in the second half of the season for Tennessee. I th- by the way, I, I think some of that is post-COVID. I, I really do. I think the – the fan bases in college football that were okay but not great. I think some after COVID, after games when you couldn't go to them, I think those programs, fans have faded away a little more. I think they've looked at it and said, eh, I went without it for a season. It wasn't that bad. Um, I think the the fan bases that are the strongest, I think after COVID, you had more of a craving to go back, that you really missed it. And so I think that's why a lot of SEC crowds or as good as now as they ever were, what was maybe better. Yeah, the fans at Vanderbilt never came back. They brought in a couple of cranes, but uh, <laughs> removed part of the stadium, uh, which is fine because they didn't need all those seats anyway. So uh, and they never came back. But <laughs> all right, so we got Adam about the same, John a little better. Okay, well, that leaves room for me on the other side then because I'm going with a little bit worse. And Maybe it's part of partially what you guys are saying here, the home road split. As I watch Kentucky against Florida, and yeah, I, acknowledgement of what Adam said, Florida hasn't lost to Tennessee at the Swamp since 2003. Maybe we were all naive thinking that Tennessee was ever going to win there. However, I did a piece before the season about the teams that enjoy the biggest home field advantage 
in the SEC. And the way I calculated it was the difference between their winning percentage on the road in conference games compared to their winning percentage at home in conference games. Now, one of the biggest differences in road home win percentage in the SEC in conference games, Kentucky. I know Tennessee hasn't lost to Kentucky much over the years, but when I watched that game on Saturday, I thought this Kentucky team looks like one of the best that Mark Stoops has had. Um, and you know, I was sitting here a week ago, and I believe I said Tennessee would go uh, two and two in this stretch of four games that started with South Carolina. I was con- counting Texas A&M and Alabama as losses. I was counting Kentucky as a win. Um, and as good as it was for, for Tennessee to win by three scores, they got the run game going, Cooper Mays, the whole bit. I just came away from Saturday that impressed by Kentucky and the environment at Kroger Field. And talk about a Super Bowl. If Tennessee treated South Carolina like the Super Bowl, depending on where Kentucky's at record-wise in its season, when Tennessee comes to town at the end of October, Kentucky's got Georgia this week, probably lose that game. Then they get Missouri at home. What if they beat Missouri and they're 6-1 and one going into a um, Halloween weekend type of game against Tennessee at 6-1 and one in Lexington? Seems like that could be a night game. I don't know. I, that That's where I come away feeling a little bit worse. It's not necessarily about Tennessee. It's about what I saw out of Kentucky. And that game to me is maybe more concerning than I would have thought in, in July or August. I mean, it's all about right now in the SEC, there's so much parity. And I know you guys talk about this on the, uh, on the SEC pod is that it, it comes down to when teams are peaking. Um, you know, I, I think a month from now we're going to look at it and whatever teams we thought were good, were really good and hot this week, Kentucky, Ole Miss, Missouri, A&M. You know, some of those teams a month from now, we're going to say, well, that's, that's when they peaked that week. And it sort of fell apart after that. There's going to be a one or two instances. It, it may be Tennessee. We may say, "Wow, they, they put up, they put up uh, 40 on uh, South Carolina, and then they faced tougher competition, and it just sort of crumbled." And so it's about when you peak. It's about how you deal with injuries. Um, you know, Tennessee did not really have a a good replacement for Cooper Mays. That's that's a, that's a place they just couldn't afford to have an injury. They had one there. If he plays the Florida game, is that different? It, it may be. Uh, maybe that 20 straight points by Florida in nine minutes in the second quarter as Tennessee couldn't communicate and couldn't deal with the environment, maybe that goes the other way or maybe it's not as bad. Uh, we'll never know. So, um, you know, you look at South Carolina the other night, um, they've had injuries on the offensive line and they were having to plug in true freshmen. They started two, two true freshmen on the, on the offensive line and uh, Tennessee just ravaged them up front. And so it's about how you deal with injuries when you peak, if you find new ways to win throughout the year. Um, you know, the Brew McCoy injury, you know, it's it's the timing of it. You get back Cooper Mays, a, an all-SEC caliber center, and then you lose Brew McCoy at the same time, a an all-SEC caliber receiver. Um, you almost have to figure, like, which one of these, like, which is which one would you take if you got to lose one of them? I think Tennessee is actually – they have the potential to probably cope with the loss of Brew McCoy a little more than the loss of Cooper Mays. I could see it going either way, but 
I think you can – good offensive minds can scheme around losing a good wide receiver. I think there's very few schemes to compensate for a, the, a soft spot in the middle of your offensive line. And we've talked about it before. It wasn't just Cooper Mays that they, they lost. Then they had to slide over a guard, and they were already – um, they were already weak at left guard. So the middle of Tennessee's offensive line has not been great for the past month. Now that that's back, you you can, you can don't have to compensate for it anymore. There are potential fixes to the Brew McCoy injury. Not great ones right now, but, but possibilities. Uh, Caleb Webb, maybe. Uh, Dante Thornton, the Oregon transfer, who's been more of a slot, but they, they may try him outside now is a possibility. Chaz Nimrod is a versatile young guy who could maybe slide into that spot. Uh, Nathan Leacock, the the freshman. Um, they may even do something more with tight ends. You know, Ethan Davis, their third tight end. He's he's a he's a guy that's supposed to be flexed. He's more of a, a receiver than he is a uh, a tight end. They may try to do something with him. They've got a bye week now and off week to sort of be creative with their personnel. And uh, you know, Brew McCoy was. Uh, I mean, he was a leader on this team. He was sort of a a toughness leader uh, sounds like a Butch Jones ism, but that's sort of <laughs> what really does. Was, you know, <laughs> uh, it, I mean, he, he's the guy that would go and pop somebody in the mouth on defense, and everybody would sort of fall in line behind him as a physical receiver, clutch receiver, could also go deep. Um, without him, you know, you wonder how they sort of react. But if you can get a, a college wide receiver open and throw him the ball, he can catch it, and that's you know. Uh, I, I think sometimes that's easier to replace. Caleb Webb caught a touchdown pass a couple games ago. He catches it. Brew McCoy catches it. What's the difference? Um, they lose a lot of intangibles uh, from Brew McCoy, but uh, they still have good wide receivers on the team. I think there's a chance they could maybe um, get through this better than they got through the Cooper Mays injury. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Cooper Mays would be a bigger loss for Tennessee than Brew McCoy, although Brew McCoy is valuable. Certainly, I think where Tennessee would really get into trouble if Ramel Keaton or Squirrel Squirrel White went down with an injury, then that reason, then its depth would really be tested a receiver. Uh, uh, Blake brought up Kentucky, how it did look really good Saturday. Uh, wretched hitch history against Tennessee. When you said Halloween, I thought uh, potential <laughs> Halloween game. I thought big orange and Kentucky turning into a pumpkin. I'm, I've just seen, I've seen ten, Kentucky teams that were better than Tennessee's and, and they still lost. They just, they're so adept at finding ways to lose it to Tennessee home or away. It doesn't matter. Uh, but right now I just watching those games Saturday, I would say Kentucky's a better team. I don't know if it will be in a couple of weeks. Kentucky has, it's on very shaky ground with depth. If it lost running back Ray Davis, I mean, the drop-off would be incredibly steep. Or if it lost its quarterback, nobody will fare well to lose a quarterback. But remember last year when Will Levis went out for Kentucky, what happened to that offense when, when it brought in a backup quarterback? So I still think that game is winnable for Tennessee. But I watching Kentucky Saturday – its line play impressed me. Uh, I didn't know it was that strong in the line. It did what Tennessee couldn't do. It moved Florida. It moved Florida off the ball. It moved Florida's defense off the ball. 
And it's def- Florida's defensive front isn't bad, but Tennessee couldn't do that. So that's going to be a tough game. This is a very tough road for Tennessee coming up. And I really think five games into a season, this is a case where I'm probably as unsure of where Tennessee's headed as in any season I can remember. I just think, I mean, I could still see this team losing five games. Uh, yeah, the, I, I mean, just, the schedule's backloaded if, yeah. if we look at it. And maybe we didn't – we knew to some extent it was going to be backloaded coming into the season with the A&M, Alabama games, Georgia. But I think when we see the realities of Florida and South Carolina and then five games into the season, you know, Missouri and, and Kentucky are 5-0. and Now each of those teams is approaching a, a prove-it Saturday with Missouri hosting LSU and, and Kentucky going to Georgia. We'll learn more about them soon. But the schedule does seem to be backloaded, and so that does shroud things, I think, a little bit more in mystery. And, yeah, when I say I feel I felt a little bit worse coming out of Saturday, it wasn't, oh, my gosh, Kentucky's going to beat Tennessee by three touchdowns. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I think I just – I feel like that is – at best, maybe a coin flip game for Tennessee. And I wouldn't have thought that going into the season. I thought, ah, Kentucky's getting some preseason hype, but Tennessee's going to go up there and do like they've done almost every time. Uh, as you put it, John, Kentucky's going to turn into a pumpkin and and we're all going to laugh at the idea that Kentucky was ever being talked about <laughs> as a threat in the East. But I've, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying can, Tennessee's uh, going to get embarrassed up in Lexington. I, I do feel like based on what I've seen, Kentucky might might actually be something real this year and not just a team that can beat Mac opponents. I think some of the suspense over Tennessee season that John is talking about, I, I feel that too. I, I think some of it comes down to Tennessee. I think some of it also comes down to just the parity in the conference. Looking at it from the preseason perspective, we'd say, well, they'll, they'll beat Kentucky. Well, Kentucky's pretty good. We said, well, they'll for sure beat Missouri. Missouri may be pretty good. You can't pencil those in as wins quite in the same way that you thought. In the preseason, we'd say, well, they're going to lose at Alabama. Uh, Alabama is, is is still really good on defense, but Alabama is vulnerable in ways that maybe we didn't think they were. Um, you know, the Georgia game, uh, Georgia is still, still really good, and Georgia may win the national title, but this Georgia team to this point is not as good as the last two. And so the the teams that you probably thought – would be losses, the games you thought would be losses for Tennessee, have come down to earth just a little bit. They seem like maybe they're a little more gettable, and the teams that you penciled in as wins in the preseason seem like they're going to be a little tougher. And so that makes the, the parity of it makes it fun, but I think that also sort of adds to the uh, suspense for a team like Tennessee that that's somewhere in the middle of all those. Yeah, yeah Adam, I, I agree. The um... See, Missouri is a team, uh, Blake brought up Kentucky. Missouri is the other team like Kentucky that I think a lot more highly of. I I thought Missouri would be right above Vanderbilt, and I didn't even see any reason to put it up as high as fifth. I just thought it would be worse than Florida. This is a different Missouri team than I expected to see. We'll know more about it against LSU, but to me that's certainly a losable game for Tennessee, and I never thought that in preseason. So many of these games could go either way, and injuries, the loss of a key player uh, right now just changes everything. Uh, We're looking ahead to Tennessee playing Texas A&M. Texas A&M is very fortunate to have a competent backup quarterback in Max Johnson. 
I mean, otherwise, that injury to Connor Wigman, uh, A&M season's over, basically. I mean, you can forget about competing for a championship, but Max Johnson's a competent quarterback, and the Aggies might might beat Alabama this week. Yeah, and, and that's where uh, Tennessee, uh, I guess, has its gaze next, is, is Texas A&M, Tennessee in the midst of an open date this week before getting back into it with uh, – um, an important game against the Aggies, which would uh, take on a, a scale even grander if Texas A&M were to beat Alabama uh, this weekend. Guys, I want to. We've talked about the Brew McCoy injury a little bit, and I want to close there because it is an important uh, development. And I agree with you guys that it's 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 easier to scheme around a wide receiver injury than it is to your starting center. I think that's a that's a good point. And we saw that firsthand last year when Cedric Tillman missed about half the season for Tennessee. He'd been so good the year before, um, you know, was still a valuable player when he was out there last year, but he wasn't out there half the time and um, Tennessee won the Orange Bowl. So we've seen you can you can work around these things. But um, Adam, I know you mentioned some names, but if we could kind of go down that road further how do you think this affects the offense? And, you know, I guess the easier answer, easiest answer is just hand the ball off more, right? I mean, Tennessee rushed for, for 239 on Saturday. But but seriously, how, how do they kind of navigate around um, what was undeniably one of their, their best targets? Well, during the, the off week, they have to – they they're sort of at a fork in the road. Um, they either can go about the offense as they would like to and as they have so far and just just plug in a guy in a brew spot and they're they're probably not as good at that spot but you just sort of keep going just plan a is we're just going to go forward with the offense it's just going to be a different name and a different jersey number over there in brew spot they have to figure out if there's a guy that can do that the the other side of the road is uh, the other path is they have to figure out a way to scheme around it and I don't think they want to do that because you potentially could be bringing in multiple guys. That's more substitutions. That's more personnel packages. That slows the tempo. That's just not where they're comfortable being. I mean, we've talked about for the last two, two and a half years that um, Tennessee puts three wide receivers out there and they just stick with three. And so they, they at this point don't want to be where they're having to try out different guys. Now I think that's that's very possible. They wouldn't they wouldn't sub during um, drives, but I could see in the A and M game, probably maybe starting with Caleb Webb at that position. Um, the uh, I guess he's a redshirt freshman now. And if that doesn't work out, then maybe you go to Dante Thornton or vice versa. Maybe give Chaz Nimrod a shot there. Um, maybe now those are in between drives. So I think you could have different guys at that position on different drives. You also could, uh, you know, you could, you could do things different with personnel and adding a, uh, another flex tight end out there. Ethan Davis that I mentioned before, McAllen castles. Um, you could see maybe them having more two tights and run the ball, as you mentioned with the run game. So they, they've got to figure out if they can go forward with just plugging in another wide receiver or if that's not there, they have to scheme around it. And that's that's what they're going to be doing all through this off week. I, I, the practices are closed, but if I had to pick a week, this is the one that I would want to be in because they're gonna they're gonna put some of those wide receivers through the ringer. The the you know, I think we kind of know what we'll get out of Webb and maybe Nimrod, because those are young, talented receivers. They're inexperienced, 
but they have talent. So I, I could see their trajectory is going up. Um, one of those guys was probably going to start next year, maybe both of them. Dante Thornton is the bigger question mark because he had a lot of preseason hype. I think more preseason hype than Tennessee would have wanted. Um, although their, uh, you know, their offensive coordinator said he was a freak in the preseason. So that, you know, <laughs> you're sort of making your bed there. Um, but Dante Thornton has had a couple of plays, but he's also had far more drops than that. Um, Physically, I don't know if he can get off pressman coverage if he's in Brew McCoy's spot. He's played the slot so far. Um, but he has his opportunity. I mean, the last two years with Tennessee, um, you know, Josh Hopple's first year, Jalen Hyatt was injured early in the year. He's a starter, got injured. Valus Jones Jr. took that spot and, and ran with it, had an all-SEC season. Jalen Hyatt had to wait a year. The next year, Cedric Tillman went out, Ramel Keaton got his chance and had a great year. Now Brew McCoy's out. And so is there a guy on this roster that will take the spot and would just keep it? And Dante Thornton has the has the door wide open as that next transfer to be the guy. Uh, just so far, he hasn't he hasn't looked like he's necessarily up to it. They're gonna they'll find out somewhat in practice this week, but they'll find out for sure once the games start. Going back to preseason, uh, you could have taken Joey Halsley's uh, comments about Thornton and thought he was talking about Randy Moss. I mean, you know, I, I was, I was ready to make him a Heisman candidate. Uh, uh, their offensive coordinator made him sound so talented. Freak is probably the highest compliment you can pay a player in today's game. I think it's interesting. And it makes me wonder when Adam is listing the injuries to receivers the last three years, it showed how much Ramel Keaton mattered last season. When Cedric Tillman went down, Ramel Keaton stepped right in. So Tennessee doesn't have a Ramel Keaton coming off the bench now. I wonder if that's kind of a flaw in this system, or if maybe since Tennessee likes to go with this, go through a possession and keep the same guys out there, force the tempo, it's worked wonderfully, but maybe you ought to work somebody else in almost on alternate possessions just to have somebody ready. I think the if there is a flaw in the system there, it's that you you have to hit with your transfer. Two years ago, Javante Payton, they got from Mississippi State, who did not really do a whole lot at Mississippi State, but he was a starter and a, and a deep threat for Tennessee that year. So so they, they went to the portal, they got a guy, and it hit. They went and got Brew McCoy out of the portal, and he hit. And now they got Dante Thornton out of the portal, and, he, and he's, he's got to be a guy. He's got to be one of your top four receivers. And he's had his chance as the fourth receiver. And it's still just, you know, the jury's still out. Um, but that, that, that's, that's what you got to do. You, you have to develop the young receivers. And like I mentioned, those two guys that I said, they feel like one, if not two of those guys will be starters next year. They've liked them in practice a lot. Uh, Nathan Leacock, the, the freshman, same thing. But they're going to go and get a transfer every year, a wide receiver transfer and they cannot miss on that guy. And right now, we don't know if Dante Thornton is a hit or a miss, but we'll we'll certainly know uh, pretty soon because either he's going to be their their third starter and he's going to take off, or he's going to get a chance, not live up to it, and they're going to go with somebody else. 
College football. It's that sport where being a freak is a compliment, and uh, your Super Bowl apparently can occur in, in week five. But more, more big games ahead for Tennessee. Uh, all the coverage over at knoxnews.com. Again, this is an open day, and Texas A&M back in next week. We will be back with you then. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Volunteer State.